0: The principle of buying something for less than what it is worth will never get old. And Phil Fisher had very rightly said that the stock market is filled with individuals over the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Stock prices fluctuate randomly every day, sometimes wildly on the other side, but the underlying business value changes very slowly. And therein lies the opportunity for us as value investors. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus
1: on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor.
2: Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.
1: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Gautam Bade, hedge fund manager and author of the book, The Joys of Compounding, The Passionate Pursuit of Lifelong Learning to discuss value investing, what he's learned from studying successful investors like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and others, his approach to investing in India, and his views on reciprocity and the sharing of knowledge. This was an insightful conversation with an investor who's a student of the markets and other great investors. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Stellar Wealth Partners, Gautam Bade. Hi, Gautam. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank to go having me. I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a couple of years now. I look back at my Amazon account as to when I actually ordered your book, and I ordered it in July of 2019. Um, so I've had it for a while. And I mean, just given the book, I mean, it, the book ca- you know captures a lot of things that our audience is interested in, value investing, um great investors like buffett and munger behavioral finance topics long-term thinking and you know this idea about learning and growing and compounding um your wealth and compounding your knowledge and so these are i think just some of the topics we're going to cover today i think in each one of those areas we could go down deep so we're just going to be hitting the tip of the iceberg with a lot of this stuff but the one thing i i i I'm, we're obviously fans of, of of the work that you do. And the one thing I'll say about your book, and this isn't true for a lot of books, and I have a break right here in my hand, but um, I can open this book to any page and I've always learn something. And that's kind of how I've, I, you know, I'm not a great finisher of books, but I have your book just lying around and I'll grab it and I'll open it up to page whatever, 252, and there'll be some knowledge and wisdom in there that's that's timeless and evergreen. So I just want to compliment you on um, you know, writing such r- really what, what is a really, really good book.
0: Thank you for your kind words, Justin.
1: Thank you. So uh, tell us, maybe just start with the story of what, you know, how, how you got there with writing the book I and mean, it's over 500 pages long. This is a major undertaking. So share your story about, you know, writing the joys of the compound and, and
0: how you got there. So in November 2016, we had joined a social media platform, Twitter for the first time. And uh, I immediately started microblogging my thoughts on investing, financial market history, philosophy, psychology, etc. And within a few months of me joining Twitter, uh, two Indians, flew all the way from India to Salt Lake City, Utah, to meet me and actually thank me for what I was sharing on Twitter. And they were the ones who actually proposed the idea of me writing a book. And what had happened, what, what had happened was that I always, always had this habit of curating and collecting all my best content in a word document and I used to keep referring back to that content again and again, and I thought, okay, why not publish uh, all this content into a book format and just try to help other people. At that time, when I self published the first edition of the jaws of compounding, the only intention was to give back to society and help others. And I had sold the book for zero royalty because I'd already achieved financial independence by then. And I just wanted to spread a message of lifelong learning and of Showing to the world that even if you follow the straight path, if you follow the right path, you can still become rich by following an ethical path. So that was the only idea that time. I never thought that the book will become so successful. Now, after the book became very popular in May, 2019, and during the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting weekend, I was in Creighton University, Omaha, signing copies of my self published book for the readers. When Miles Thompson from Columbia Business School Publishing, New York flew out from New York to meet me in Omaha and they offered me a publishing contract with them. And the rest, as they say, is history today. The Joys of Compounding is an international bestseller in five different countries. So that's a brief about uh, the background for the book and my life, Justin, it epitomizes it, it, itgi- Isaac Newton's saying that if I've seen further, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. The Joys of Compounding is my heartfelt tribute to all my teachers who helped me achieve financial independence, become a better and wiser person can help me embark on the path to a meaningful and fulfilling life. Our goodwill compounds when we share with others and we should always act as a funnel of knowledge, not a sponge. As Charlie has so beautifully said, that the best thing a human being can do is to help another human being no more. In life, the winners also lose occasionally, but those who help others rise can never lose. So always help others rise. This is how goodwill compounds over time. The principles emphasized throughout the book, Power the lifelong compounding journey of a value investor. At the same time, the learnings are not restricted to only about investing. This is because compounding does not apply only to money. Social and intellectual capital also compound. Investing in yourself, in your relationships, and in your understanding of the world pays massive dividends over time. And all the great things in life come from compounding interest. That's why in my book I've talked about compounding positive thoughts, compounding good health, compounding good habits compounding knowledge compounding with and compounding goodwill two things i want to ask one's tactical and one's more strategic
1: so let's start with maybe the easier one first on the curation side that is one thing i think that really stands out in this book is the i went to the references or the notes section and you know this is where you're giving credit to all these different sources so your ability to curate that material it's really a skill and it's impressive i mean do you have any not that everybody wants to do this. I I like to curate stuff. So do you have any just quick, helpful, you know, tips on curating? Or is it as simple as creating a Word
0: document and just getting your sources down? I think curating uh, the content that you like is the easy part, but editing, when you're writing, when you're actually publishing a book, editing is the really tough part because, you know, as an author, every single line that you've written, every single piece of content that you've created, it is like an own baby. But when you're actually dealing with Formally, with a publishing house, they do want to restrict and lower the number of words and the the number of pages because publishing houses do understand that very few people want to read 500 to 600 pages of a book. So, the idea was to further condense it down to the most outstanding pieces of content. So, the uh, book physical copy which I see in your hands that is the physical self indulgent version which I self published. The Columbia Business School Publishing Edition is further compressed by 100 more pages and it has further being, uh, brought down to the most outstanding content from the first edition, self published edition. So curation is not that difficult to be honest. It's the editing and cutting out and figuring out what to cut, what to cut out and delete, that is what it really takes a lot of
1: Yep, good point. Um, and where do you, where does this philosophy come from, for, from you in terms of wanting to help others? I mean, I think we all, well, hopefully if you're a good human being, we all want to help other people. Um, but you know, you, you really kind of brought to the next level and said, I'm going to put in all this work and initially I'm going to give this book away for free and help other people
0: learn and grow. Where, where does that come from within you? To a large extent, it is a function of my background. So I come from a middle class background in India and having come up the hard way and, you know, through a lot of discipline, patience and savings. But in hindsight, I wish I would have rolled about all this uh, great content much more earlier in my life, because the key to talk about in this time, the earlier you start, the faster you will achieve your goal because the power of compounding is backloaded. So, in the initial years it works very slowly and then it just takes off in an exponential manner towards the end. You want to get on the J curve or the exponential part of the curve as soon as you can. So, basically, this book is an effort to help people get on that exponential part of the J curve as soon as possible in their lives. So, uh, I have the, do uh, hope that many more people read this book and get to know about all the principles, timeless principles as soon as possible in their life, because the faster you start, the earlier you start, the better off you will be in your life. And Gaurav and also Warren Buffett and Charlie Wong, where have always talked about, you know, helping others and, you know, following the ethical path, just being a kind person. So these are the softer attributes, which you get by attending the Berkshire annual meetings and getting to interact with like-minded investors in the community. I think the value investing community, which attends the Berkshire annual meetings is a very kind community, very helpful community. And with this, there's a saying that you are the average of the five people you associate with the most in your life. So if you as- surround yourself with good people, you'll automatically turn into a good person yourself. It's your eventual, eventually your absence, your attitude, your behavior is a function of your environment. That includes the people around you. You, you alluded
2: to the idea that, the, that one of the most important things with compounding is time and, you know, it's very backloaded. But one of the things you see investors do a lot of the time is, you know, the one thing you can't do with compounding is you can't interrupt it. Because if you inter- interrupt it, you kind of diffuse the whole process. And I'm wondering, you know, it's something as a money manager, we struggle with a lot, you know, tr- trying to get investors during times like we're going through right now where the market's going down, trying to get investors not to panic, trying not to have their emotions get the best of them. And I'm wondering if there's any tips you would have in terms of how you can help investors not interrupt compounding.
0: That's a very good question, Jack. And it, in my view, this is one of the biggest areas of value add which a good fund manager brings to the table. So... I've often talked about this aspect that in, order, in, in addition to delivering a positive financial return, a good fund manager also focuses on delivering a positive emotional return to his clients. So what do I mean by that? At the end of the day, the money management business is a relationship management business. And this requires the fund manager to demonstrate certain attributes and virtues, honesty, transparency, sincerity, integrity, authenticity. These are the software attributes, which helps your clients sleep peacefully at night. And let's assume that, you know, after the client uh, invests the money, we enter a bear market and the account value goes down. This is when the clients need handholding. They need to be educated on the fundamentals of the portfolio holdings. They need to be given a basic education on financial market history. The fund managers should also make themselves readily accessible and available to all the investors in the fund. There should not be any opaqueness. There should not be any lack of transparency. These are the ways in which you basically help your clients stay the course and reap the benefits of compounding over the long term, because otherwise what will happen is your clients will end up incurring what is known as the behavior gap, basically entering at the top and then panel selling at the bottom. So that is the worst possible outcome that can happen. So in order to ensure that your clients get the full benefits of stock market returns across the full market cycle, keep uh, maintaining an ongoing dialogue with them. And then also keep uh, them aware about your process and philosophy in a clear and transparent manner. Then the outcome will take care of itself.
2: Yeah, I think your point about education is a good one. And, you know, particularly educating clients about what happens in the bad times. So, you know, one of the things we tried to do is talk to clients about what does this strategy look like when it's doing really badly, because those are the times you're going to have to stay the course. And so we've tried to, you know, educate as much as we can on the bad as well as the good. You know, some people try to take the bad and kind of sweep it under the rug. But I think it's important to understand. You know, because if it's not a strategy you can follow, then it's better to know that upfront than to know that later when you get in those bad times. Absolutely. And I think that this is where
0: having a very solid understanding of financial market history and knowing what works in a particular market is also important. So there is a table in my book uh, in which you'll see that I've shown a list of good stocks and bad stocks, good good business and bad businesses at the beginning of January, 2008, which which was the peak of the previous bull market in India. And then I've shown the performance of those stocks up to the subsequent bear market bottom in 2018, 2030 And what I've got to is bring out to that particular table is that good and great businesses create wealth across market cycles amid all the negative headlines, like rising inflation, rising interest rates, geopolitical tensions, disease outbreaks, but bad businesses and gruesome businesses eventually destroy wealth regardless of whether the headlines are positive or negative. So one of the biggest, uh, moments for me as an invested in the last 15 years is the fact that good quality stocks the good businesses bounce back and recover back the fastest after every bear market or market shift. But the bad businesses or the gruesome businesses, they tend to lie low and stay depressed after every bear market. And they take years to recover back to their previous wartime rise, if at all, they do. One of the things you have
2: in common with Justin and I is all three of us are pretty big believers in value investing. Um, you know, I think the evidence is pretty strong that value investing works over a very long multi-decade period of time but there's a lot of debate as to why it works.
0: And I'm wondering what you think makes value such an evergreen strategy. Well, it's very simple, Jack. The principle of buying something for less than what it is worth will never get old. And Phil Fisher had very rightly said that the stock market is filled with individuals over the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Stock prices fluctuate randomly every day, sometimes wildly on the other side, but the underlying business value changes very slowly. And therein lies the opportunity for us as value investors. Focus on the volatiles. Focusing on what is moving is part of our evolutionary instincts. And this is this explains why market participants talk prices, which keep bobbing about up and down every day, instead of the underlying business value, which changes very slowly. And capitalizing on others' desire to avoid downside volatility is what makes value investing work. And Joel Greenblatt uh, put it very aptly. He said, Value investing works, but value investing does not work all of the time. And that is why value investing works. You reference value not working all the
2: time, and you know that's that's probably a salt on the wound for some of us that are value investors because we just went through a decade where it was one of those very long periods where it didn't work. And you know, at, at, during that period, there were a lot of people questioning, you know, whether value works anymore. And you know, th- there have been other periods in history, but this was a particularly long one. And I'm just wondering, did you see anything in that period that made you question value, or is that just something that that's sort of the price you have to pay for being a long-term value investor?
0: This is a common debate that we coming across in the media as on TV and social media all the time, growth versus value. In my view, all intelligent investing is value investing. And let's go back, let's revisit the, the first principles of investing. What is the, when you say value, what is the intrinsic value of any asset? It is the present value of the cash flows to be received from that asset over its remaining useful life, discounted for the time value of money and the uncertainty of receiving those cash flows. Less predictable cash flows need to be discounted at a higher rate. Predictability of cash flows is the most important factor. Now, value investing has always worked throughout since inception throughout the last century. But what is really matters is that you apply the principles of value investing correctly. For example, if you are a deep value investor investing in cheap cyclical commodity businesses, then you need to enter those businesses during the industry downturn when the market cap and valuations are depressed and then patiently hold on to those stocks up to the uh, end of the next industry upcycle to reap maximum capital appreciation. All that you need to do is that when you invest in those companies during the downturn, you check their balance sheet to make sure that they can survive another two, three years of industry downturn. That's it. So that's about deep value investing. And when you're practicing growth investing, you should practice growth at a reasonable price. Because in my experience of the last 15 years, this is the only single strategy, which works across all market environments, high interest rate, low interest rate, high inflation, low inflation. This is when particular, this particular strategy works well across all market environments. So whether you're practicing deep value or whether you're practicing growth investing, focus on fundamental principles within each of these two categories. This don't bracket, uh, you know, investing into a single box like value because value investing is not about buying bad, damaged, declining businesses cheap. It's about getting more value for the price that you're paying with the least amount of risk. This is the definition of value investing.
2: Yeah, I think we, uh, I think a lot of investors probably should have, uh, heeded your guidance on investing growth at a reasonable price because there was a lot of investing in growth at an unreasonable price, um, last year. And that, that certainly hasn't ended very well for a lot of investors.
0: So you have to be a student of market history and there's a great book by Howard Marks, which I highly recommend to everyone. It's called mastering the market cycle, which he basically talks about how you need to be aware and cognizant of regime change or regime shift. So basically these uh, unprofitable revenue, high revenue growth companies we have done well in a period of high liquidity and low interest rates over the last 13, 14 years. But now that we're entering a period of quantitative tightening, more expensive cost of capital and the higher interest rates, these were the first stocks to deflate. So what matters is investing for the long term is really not how much paper profit you make in a bull market, but how much of that wealth can you retain after the subsequent bear market. That is what defines a truly great investor. And these are the lessons which you can learn if you have the sincere approach of learning from the most successful investors in history, their view, how to adapt to changing market conditions.
2: You talked earlier about investing in high quality businesses and, you know, quality is one of the toughest things to measure as an investor. You know, if, if you ask one person what quality is, it's going to be completely different than what another person thinks. How do
0: you define quality when you think about a quality company in your portfolio? It's very simple, actually, there are only three attributes which you need to know to identify a quality business. A quality business is one, which has high returns of capital employed. Number two, it has, it has to have a sustainable corporate advantage or what we call votes in order to ensure that it can sustain those, those high returns of capital employed for a long period of time. And third, that business should have sufficient reinvestment opportunities to deploy all that excess free cash flow at high rates of return within the business itself. That is how. A quality business becomes a compounding machine. So there's three things, high returns of capital employed, cooperative advantage, it's plenty of reinvestment opportunities, and high rates of return, Simple. And when you think about the valuations on
2: high-quality companies, um, you know, I, I know you you like to have a reasonable price in what you're investing in. Are there are there any metrics you prefer? Or how do you think about valuation when it comes to these high-quality companies? So
0: my book in the chapter on uh, intrinsic value, actually talk, I've actually talked about this, that uh, so for every stock in the world, there is something called a fair P ratio or a fair evaluation multiple that's fair evaluation. Multiple for any stock is simply a function of the interplay between two things, the earnings growth and the cash flow yield, the cash flow yield is nothing but the spread between the return or invested capital and the cost of capital. So the bigger the cash flow yield and the bigger the earnings uh, and the bigger the earnings growth, the more the higher valuation multiple, which is stock should get and put white papers on value. In my book, I've talked about two very, which will explain this concept in more detail the first one is Michael Morrison's white paper titled what was the price to earnings multiple V and the second white paper, which I referenced in my book is by Epoch investment partners. It's titled the P ratio, a user's manual. If investors can simply read these two white papers, they will understand that why certain stocks in the stock market get a higher valuation multiple compared to the others. It's simply a function of the return of capital employed and the earnings growth, because in the stock market, if you're having, if you're running below your cost of capital, and then if you try to grow, then you end up destroying shareholder value. So the bigger the spread between your cost, between your return of capital and the cost of capital, the bigger your cash per yield, the more the business should focus on on uh, improving and increasing the growth, but, and the converse is true. if you are having lower returns on capital employed, which is equal or below your cost of capital, then you should focus on improving your cost of capital. You should not focus on improving growth in the business. We had Michael Mobison on the podcast.
2: And one of the things he talked about is he teaches his students that they have to earn the right to use a multiple, which gets at the paper you were talking about. Like you have to understand what goes on behind the scenes in the multiple and what it actually means. And once you do that, then you can earn the right to use it. But a lot of people just look at a multiple and don't really know what it actually means.
0: Right. And that is why in my book I've talked about this, that There's a lot more to making money in the stock market than just looking at the price to earning ratio, because the price to earnings ratio does not tell you about the competitive advantage of a business, the capital intensity of a business, the management execution capabilities, the goodwill and reputation of the management and other software attributes. Just looking at the P ratio in isolation is meaningless. You have to understand how much capital is the business using to generate that growth and that in turn explains uh, the fair P multiple, which a business should get. And more importantly, is this. A higher return capital investment sustainable. That can only happen when you have a good qualitative insight into the competitive advantage of a business. One of
2: the challenges investors face is, you know, that they may have a group of high quality companies they want to invest in, but then what do I do? And, you know, as quants, we kind of take the easy way out and we just equal weight our whole portfolio, but position sizing can be so important. I'm, I'm wondering, how, to, how do you think about position sizing in your portfolio? So I
0: size individual allocations in my portfolio according to my evaluation of potential risk, with the highest allocations having the lowest likelihood, Of permanent loss of capital coupled above average return potential. I initiate new positions with a minimum weighting of 3 to 5% and subsequently average upwards if the management executes above my expectation. And it's very important to note that individual position sizing is important not only for its impact on overall portfolio performance, but also for one's mental peace of mind. I sell down to my sleeping point if a single position becomes a discomfortingly large percentage of my portfolio value. We should have high weights in businesses with high longevity, solid growth prospects, and submit capital allocators. And as Mae West has very rightly said, too much of a good thing can be worth it. What do you think? I, I know we'll talk a little bit more about an, uh, your fund you're
2: running in India, but I want to talk to you first about the, the idea of longevity for fund managers. Um, you know, what, what do you think are the keys in terms of being an, an emerging market fund manager who has longevity in this business?
0: So, I think uh, there are certain key success attributes which you need to keep in mind to ensure longevity as an emerging manager in the investment business, be it for a new stock market. The first one is having long term minded partners because patient capital helps build resilience during periods of underperformance. So that's the first point. Second point a low cost, frugal setup confers longevity to you and your fund. So, frugality is the second point. The third success attribute is being flexible and open minded. Just don't box yourself into a particular single investing style of strategy just to appease your investors. And make and you should have, the fund manager should have the flexibility, the leeway to adapt to changing market conditions many he deems fit and make sure that your fund documents reflect that. It's very important that you get the full flexibility to adapt and modify your investing strategy as per the changing market conditions. You should not just be boxed into a single style of deep value or high growth should invest wherever you find good value for your money. And the fourth success attribute for an emerging manager is choosing the service providers for the fund very carefully, because those service providers are the one who will ensure a smooth functioning of your organization and uh, ensure longevity for your firm. So these four are the key success attributes for all emerging fund managers. When you
2: looked at sort of creating your fund, you sort of modeled out after Buffett, I believe. Um, And I was wondering, you know, in your opinion, the original Buffett partnership structure, you know, what what
0: were the pros and cons of that for investors? So you you will rarely find such an equitable fee structure in the fund management industry today. In my view, the Buffett partnership fee structure was one of the most fair and reasonable fee structures. In that particular fund structure, Warren Buffett took zero management fee and he had a 6% hurdle rate subject to a high watermark provision, which meant that he would not get paid until his investors' year-end accounting account values reach their previous all-time highs, and finally, Buffett would take twenty-five percent performance allocation above the six percent mm-hmm. hurdle rate. So, in my view, it was a very fair and reasonable structure. I want to ask you. This is really cool. I was looking at your Twitter in preparation for this interview, and you actually
2: posted a letter from Buffett that said, "Dear Mr. Gotam, I think the arrangement you describe is eminently fair. Incidentally, all the original partners preferred this sort of arrangement to the one I used, to the one that used the Dow, Justin, Dozen Industrial Average, or the S and P five hundred index as the bogey." And I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk about your interactions with Buffett you've had and, and, sort of how you got to this point where he was writing you this letter.
0: So I first reached out to Warren Buffett in 2018, when I sent him the manuscript of my self-published book, uh, I wanted his formal approval for including some of the content from my shareholder letters in my book. And he had very kind words to say about the book as well that time and that also contributed to the book's success, success initially. And early last year in 2021, I wrote to him asking about his feedback. For my proposed fund structure, I wanted to make my fund as partner centric as possible. And I was asking him whether instead of the 6% hurdle rate, should I keep the S&P 500 as the annual hurdle rate for the fund. But he recommended me to keep the 6% absolute hurdle rate because he said, what, you know, what if there's a 10 year or stretch or more when the S&P gives 0% return, in that case, the hurdle rate will become zero. So it's more appropriate that you keep a hard hurdle rate of 6% and uh, you also had good words to say about the fund structure. We called it eminently fair. And I further gone one step ahead and improved all the horizontal Buffett partnership structure by lowering my performance allocation from 25% to 20% in the best interest of my investors to maximize their net realized returns.
2: Yeah. I always find it interesting when people, we've never interacted with Buffett, but it it seems like it's it's quite an interesting process. I mean, I I think you, you end up talking to his assistant, right? And then she will, he, he will like, she will write emails to you or she might write letters for him, but it's. It's sort of an interesting back and forth process whenever we've talked to, we've talked to a few different people on the podcast who've had
0: some interactions with Buffett. True, true. In my book, if you see that knowledge section, I've actually thanked Debbie the uh, Buffett's uh, secretary for assistant for. Do you have any other details you can give us sort of
2: on the, some of the ideas, some of the best practices you're using in your fund in terms of like how, how many total positions do you have?
0: You know, what are you trying to accomplish with goals with it? Anything like that? Still with Partners India Fund is an investment partnership modeled after the original mm-hmm. Buffett. Partnership fee structure, zero management fee. Will subject to a high watermark provision and a 20% performance allocation of, of 6% annum. In this particular fund, I manage risk. and look at myself as first and foremost, a risk manager and I, I manage risk this risk by management quality, seeking a margin of safety in terms of valuations, avoiding acts, avoiding the use of derivatives, short and leverage and maintaining a diversified portfolio and we invest in listed equities in Ethereum with a long-term fundamental and value-oriented approach.
1: In your book, you wrote the success of an investment manager is as much about his or her ability to bet prospective clients as it is to say no to the wrong type of investment idea. And we've sort of talked about the importance of getting the right clients on the bus, but can you just kind of elaborate on on that a little bit and sort of what you're really trying to say there?
0: It's very important to have the right partners because having the right investor base will help the fund manager build longevity and stay the course for long-term resilient wealth creation. The worst thing that can happen to a fund manager is to have short term mid-patient clients who pull out at the first signs of market trouble, because as you know, a hedge fund is, is a full fund structure. So if any single a single client pulls out his money during a bear market or a market crash, then the fund manager is supposed to sell the holdings of the, the pool holdings of the fund portion of the pool holdings at a rock bottom price. And that in turn puts further pressure on these stock prices of the holdings. So you ideally want to vet and be very careful about the kind of partners that you onboard into the fund. So right now also, uh, as I'm in the process of marketing, the fund and raising capital, I'm very, being very cautious and careful as to the kind of investors or let, uh, be very fatal during the future bear market, come into the fund, then onboard into the fund because choosing the wrong partners situation. So in order to have longevity in this business, make sure that you choose the right clients mm-hmm. and patient lot of capital is the key to having a successful investment management business.
1: So t- two things on that. Do you know who Wes Gray is from Alpha Architect? Yes. Okay. So I was listening to him on a podcast. This was like a year or two ago and they were talking about, um, Buffett. And up until that point, it was like his relative underperformance since like the financial crisis. So this might have been like 2016, 2017. Obviously, Berkshire has done very well more recently. But, you know, and they were sort of like asking, has Buffett like lost his edge? Like that was the the thing. And then, you know, Wes took a step back and he's like, but you know what, though, like those investors that have been with Buffett and stayed with Buffett, They've gotten, even though Berkshire Hathaway over that 15 year period, whenever that was, has had underperformed the S&P by maybe one or 2%, those investors had actually got that return. So his biggest, it, 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 it wasn't about the return. It was like the investors in Berkshire actually achieved that return because they stayed with him. So, you know, to your your point, I mean, Buffett's done a great job of attracting the right type of high quality investor. We actually had, um, Lawrence Cunningham on the podcast, who talks about quality shareholders and, and uses Berkshire as a, as the sort of the preeminent example there. Um, so what, what, what you were saying just sort of reminded me of that comment that Wes said.
0: True. Agree. Fully agree. And, uh, that's by having a very high quality shareholder base, just like it has helped Berkshire Hathaway build longevity. That is what I need to do in the fund as well. have a very high quality estate base because at the end of the day, you also just, we just don't, want to eat, just don't want to eat well, you also want to sleep well. And that is why it is very important to have good, long term minded partners in your fund.
1: How do you, how do you vet those, those investors? Do you actually speak with them? Do they
0: fill out a questionnaire? There's no formal questionnaire, but I really focus on two key aspects. So I try to gauge their attitude towards short-term volatility. So I ask them, you know, if suppose you or immediately after your investment, suppose your point value goes down by 40, 50% in a few months time. Because in the markets, anything can happen at a short notice. What will be your reaction? Would you panic or would you, you know, stay the course? That's the first question. And the second question is about the time horizon because two decades, the timeline of my company is building generational wealth. And for that, I need people who are ready to invest for at least a few, if not more. Because the real power of compounding is realized really over very long time periods. So time horizon and attitude towards volatility, these are the two Aspects, which I try to understand for each of my current clients. Is your fund
1: limited to Indian investors or are you taking U.S. investors as well and allocating them into in Indian equities?
0: The fund is, the fund is based in the U.S. and is available only to accredited investors in the U.S. only. It's not a global fund. It's, it's not open to global investors. It's only open to uh, the citizens and lawful permanent residents living in America.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, and what's the, and how do you sort of frame up the, um, discussion around getting part of the, someone's portfolio allocated to the Indian equity market? I mean, you clearly there's, you know, it's a, it's an emerging market growing economy. Um, but what's the benefit for us investors investing in India?
0: Right. So there is a saying which goes that no four trillion trillion dollars of GDP on earth can stop it. Now, idea whose time has come and India's time has arrived. It took India 60 years to reach its first, but it took India just seven years to reach the se- second trillion dollars of GDP and the subsequent, uh, trillion dollars of GDP are expected to be reached in faster succession. Now, if we simply assume that the market capital GDP ratio approximates one over time, one can just envisage. The kind of wealth creation that lies in store for investors in great Indian businesses over the next few decades, trillions of dollars, and the nation's best managed companies with proven ability to scale up their operations will capture the bulk of this upcoming wealth creation boom in India. And it is my personal conviction and belief that all investors in the world should have some allocation in their personal portfolios dedicated to Indian equities. One should not miss out on such a big wealth creation opportunity. And the reason why I say this is. If you look at the history of any major stock market in the world, be it Japan, China, or US, wherever those countries' GDP went from $2.5 trillion to $5 trillion, their GDP doubled, but their stock markets did not just double, their stock markets tripled or quadrupled. The fastest phase of wealth creation in any nation's stock market takes place when that nation transitions from a low-income country to a middle-income country because As an example, if your, if your per capita GDP goes from thousand dollars to three thousand dollars in the case of India, for example, that the basic spending on items like food goes up very marginally, but the spending on discretionary branded consumption and the financialization of savings, those categories go up 10X and 5X respectively. So there's a big exponent, so you get linear growth, but exponential opportunities in these two categories in a growing nation like India, which is transitioning from. $1,000 $1,000 per capita GDP to $3,000 per capita GDP. And today India's GDP is $2.8 trillion. So right now we're just about to enter the cusp of the fastest pace of wealth creation in the Indian stock market, because that is what history teaches us US, Japan, China, go back in history and check what the stock markets did when they moved from 2.5 trillion to 5 trillion GDP. That is what that is where India stands today. This is why I'm so excited to bring this India investment opportunity to investors in America.
1: It's great. Sounds like India is a growth at a reasonable price type of country right now <laughs> um what's your process for do you do do you deploy any um quantitative screening processes processes and sort of sorting these stocks or looking for these i mean it sounds like you, you definitely roll your sleeves up and then you're looking at um the items the, the metrics you talked about um but you know just could you elaborate on your process a little bit i, I do i do know one of the we, we do some business and have some partnerships um, in, in, in India. And I know, like the fundamental data, the cleaning of that is, is important. And the scrubbing, making sure you have, you know, the correct data, you, you just got to make sure your the data is, you know, accurate and correct. So just what, what, you know, what's your investment process, generally speaking?
0: So uh, every good investor tries to but first and foremost, look at primary data. That is what I would do as well. So, every single day, I diligently review all of the corporate announcements on the Pompous Pong Stock Exchange website. For many, it is like a tedious exercise, but for me, it is like an intellectual treasure hunt wherein I may strike gold anytime. And this way, every single day, I'm creating numerous opportunities for serendipity and good luck to find me and my investors. So, I go through press releases, investor presentations, MA deal, joint venture partnership agreements. I also go through the conference calls of the companies that I'm tracking on platforms like Alpha Street, Trendline Research Bytes, and company website Relations section. I also study the annual reports and the credit rating reports of the companies that I'm tracking, and I also study the draft red prospectus and the qualified institutional placement offering document of companies that I'm tracking because the prospectus and the QIP offering document contains a rich level of detail about the underlying industry of a company. So, as an example. If you want to understand the dynamics of the music licensing industry in India, you can read the recent Qualified Institutional Placement Offering document of a company named Saragama Limited. Not a stock recommendation, just for educational purposes. I also read equity research reports by brokers whose quality of content is pretty really good in India. They include Anbit, ICSI Securities, Indian Online, Normal Bargain Access. I also engage in daily discussions with my peers and tellings in the industry. And I also look out for the views of the leading analysts of individual sectors. Along with this, I also go through certain screening tools. So there is this website called Tejori Finance. which gives me a lot of good data on chemical prices, commodity prices. It helps me conduct a reverse discounted cash flow operation. And there's a very popular screening tool in India called screener.in in which I look for companies, which have either completed a very big capacity expansion or are on the verge of completing a very big capacity expansion. And I also evaluate price action. When I'm looking for new stock ideas, I also look at price action. So I look for stocks which are hitting a 50 week high an all-time high or a post IPO new high. Now, what do I mean when I say that after the initial listing, they pop post IPO new high. Many times you'll see the stock price tends to go into a long-term time consolidation range for eight, 10 months. And when that stock price breaks out to a new all-time high after that time consolidation, it generally coincides with something important taking place in that company or that industry. At the same time, it's very important to understand that context is most important when you're evaluating price action. So during a bull market, you'll have multiple stocks, hundreds of stocks hitting 50-day highs every degree highs every day. So during a bear, so during a bull market, you look for stocks hitting multi highs. Immediately after a bear market crash, look for stocks hitting a three month or a six month high. And in a range bound sideways or downtrending market, look for stocks, which are breaking out to fresh 50 degree highs. So this is not the be all and end all, but this is a good starting point for further research. Also, I, uh, look at, uh, Stocks which are experiencing a 50-week high volume on a daily basis. Because if any company stock is experiencing a 50-week high trading volume on a particular day, it generally coincides with something important taking place in that company or its underlying industry. And in the stock markets, prices and volumes move first and the reported fundamentals follow later. This is what I've seen in the last 15 years that Mr. The market is uh, the collective wisdom of Mr. Market is basically most of the time much, much more efficient and superior than that of the individual investors. So always be humble and be willing to pay attention to what the market is trying to tell you. And finally, we have got so, uh, social media platforms like Twitter, WhatsApp groups, and telegram channels and mm-hmm. online forums like value picker forum and multiple forum for sourcing stock ideas in India. So, it's very extensive list. And if you go through such an extensive list for the, every single day of your remaining investing career, how can you not be simply flooded with opportunities all the time be the bull market or a bear market or a sideways market. In live business relationships or investing, nothing will work unless you do. But there is no reason for you to settle for an infinite track record in a marketplace like India, which is filled with companies having outstanding fundamentals.
1: That's a quite, a, uh, extensive process. And I think your, your skill of curation and organizing content and, you know, information probably helps make it efficient for you and able to actually do, do the work you need to do. Um, on your website and maybe I'm sorry if this is, uh, just kind of asking what, what you just answered, but you, you say that, um, you specialize in identifying emerging and fundamentally strong, we've talked about the fundamentally strong aspect of the businesses you look for, but based on variant perception and long-term structural trends. So I just wanted to ask you if you could
0: sort of shape that out a little bit more. Sure. So let me talk about varying perception first. Varying perception refers to situations where you get earnings growth Coupled with return on capital employed (ROC) expansion and valuation re-rating, and you end up with multi-baggers. And varied perception comes from having a differentiated view on the short to medium-term trajectory of a business. And There are multiple triggers for varied perception, starting with deleveraging, for example. So deleveraging means as debt goes down, interest cost goes down, net profit goes up, and market cap goes up. The second source for varied perception is that of operating leverage. For instance, a company may be sitting on a large amount of unutilized capacity, just as the industry is about to enter an upcycle. So in those cases, the net profit grows much more disproportionately faster than the top line growth. The third source of varying perception is that of companies which have completed a very big capacity expansion. And now in the initial days of completing that capacity, the margins are lower because the company incurs incremental interest costs and depreciation costs. So initially the uh, margins and net profits are suppressed, but as soon as the pre-production costs are recovered, when the companies tend to report very strong earnings growth, so that's another source for varying perception. Another source for varying perception is that of an industry cycle shift. So, as an example, in middle of two thousand twenty, the residential real estate cycle in India turned around after more than a decade. That's an example of industry cycle shift. Another source of varying perception is that of a regulatory change. So, uh, since Early 2020, the government of India has been placing a heavy emphasis on ethanol blending, and that has led to multiple multi-bagger opportunities from the sugar mills and distillery space. Yet another source for varying perception is that of improvement in asset turns. You can get this information from managements on the conference halls as to what is the expected turnover of the new fixed asset capacity. Here, we need to understand that ROC expansion comes from two sources, margin improvement improvement improve in asset terms. And between the two, I prefer the latter because higher margins tend to attract competition. Yet another source for varied perception is it, uh, expanding into a higher higher margin product category product mix. So basically changing your product mix and entering into a higher margin product category. Some more sources were some more sources for varied perception include corporate actions like spin-offs, reverse mergers, promoter or management change, and eh? diversification of a loss making or a Non core business segment. Because in these cases, the stock market tends to reward you with a higher value multiple. Now, these were all the various sources for varied triggers for varied perception. Now, at this particular point of time, I'm about to share with you the fundamental principle of value creation, which applies to every single stock market in the world. That is, our viewers can understand and and imbibe this particular principle for the remaining part of their investing career. They will do very, very well. In the stock market, there are only two kinds of companies one with low returns of capital employed. In one with high returns of capital employed. In case of companies with low returns on capital employed, the maximum delta, the return of capital employed, that is about where if pers- maximum rate of change, the maximum intrinsic value creation takes place when they focus on improving their refined is all about transitioning from lower return of capital employed to high return of capital employed. And for companies having high returns of capital employed, the maximum delta, the maximum rate of change, the maximum intrinsic value creation takes place. And they focus on improving their revenue growth. And these kinds of companies are found in long-term structural trends. Long-term structural trends are found in industries with a very favorable structure. They're always like a monopoly or a duopoly or an oligopoly at best. And they're experiencing some form of an industry tailwind. They're characterized by consistency and predictability of cash flows. They have a long run before growth ahead. So you have visibility for many years ahead in the future. They are also characterized by value migration. So in India, for the last decade, we have had value migration from unorganized to organized, offline to online, public to private, and there are multiple structural growth plays in India, namely contract development and manufacturing organizations, contract research and manufacturing services, custom synthesis and manufacturing, specialty chemicals with critical application, affordable housing, fintech, cloud computing, digital transformation, electric vehicles, Multiple mega trends and long-term structural trends are in place in the Indian market, and Stellar Partners India Fund is a blend of varying perception and long-term structural trends. This is how we plan like to participate in India's growth opportunity for the next few decades. And Robert
1: Hagstrom, who worked with Bill Miller at Lake Mason, and he went to uh, it was Amazon, and in, in the late when Miller invested in Amazon, I think it was in, in you know early two thousands, basically. And, you know, Amazon had those characteristics. They had a very high return on capital and they had the long-term structural trend of the internet and Miller saw that. And I think supposedly, um, even though Jeff Bezos got divorced and his wife owns a big chunk of Amazon, but after those two shareholders, I think Bill Bill Miller may be the largest shareholder of Amazon due to that investment he made.
0: True. Yeah. When you find that really great opportunity, make it count.
1: So we've asked you all easy questions so far. So this might be the hardest one of the, the podcast here. If you could only retain three books from that bookshelf behind you, and it can't be your book, um, because your book would probably be one of them given it's, a, <laughs> but it can't be your book. What three books would you, would you keep?
0: So I'll share three, uh, investing books and three non-investing books, if that's okay with you well, for the investing books, I would really recommend, uh, Investing for Growth by Terry Smith, because that book taught me how to invest in high-quality businesses for the long term. The second investing book I would recommend is Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which teaches you how to invest in various special situations like spin-offs, promoter management change, merger arbitrage, etc. The third book which I would recommend is Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks, which teaches you how to position your portfolio during different market regimes. That's, those are the three investing books. For three non-investing books, uh, the first book I would recommend is More Than You Know by Michael Boveson and Seeking Wisdom by Peter Bevelin is the second one. These are two great books on multidisciplinary thinking. And the third book I would recommend is All I Want To Know is where, I'm going to, is where I'm Going To Die So That I Will Never Go There, again by Peter Bevelin. It's a great book on the principle of inversion or knowing what to avoid. So these are the three investing books and the three non-investing books I would, I would recommend.
1: Is there any uh, new book for you in the future? Or are, is is, uh, is the joys of compounding? What w- wasn't one and done for you? Or are you working on anything else?
0: At present, there are no plans for writing another book. But in case in the future, if anything materializes, I'll keep all my readers posted. So we have
1: a standard closing question we like to ask all our guests. And um, I'm really excited to see how you answer this just because you're really a student of the market and great investors. Um, but Based on your experience in markets and all the research you've done, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be?
0: Stay the course at the stock market for the long term in a portfolio of good quality stocks for resilient wealth creation.
1: Love it. God, thank you very much for joining us. This has been great. If people want to learn more about you, your fund, where can they go on Twitter and where can they go on the the web to follow you, learn more about you?
0: To know more about my book, read. So I, can be, so I can be reached on LinkedIn and Twitter. Right? So people can visit dot com to learn more about my idea fund. People can visit
1: com. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of XS Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at at JJCarbineau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.